And he went across it from one side to the other. The people oohed and awed. Then he took a wheelbarrow and he pushed it across and back. Then he put sand in the wheelbarrow and did the same. The crowds were amazed. He actually walked on stilts across the falls. He rode a bicycle across it. I read that he actually had a little portable oven in which he cooked an omelet out in the middle of Niagara Falls on a wire. So when he got back, he asked the crowd, you've seen what I have done here. Do you believe that I could put a person inside my wheelbarrow here and push him across? Everybody said, oh, yes, we believe that you could do that. And then he said, who's going to get in? And nobody got in. They just said they believed. His manager, though, did actually get on his back, at least, and uh, blonde and walked him across the falls and back. So they all said they believed, yet only one person, the manager, actually had enough faith to get in the wheelbarrow, as it were. So Abraham today, we're going to see, he comes to a point where he gets in the wheelbarrow. In chapter 13, we saw that Abraham and Lot part ways. Lot went on to Sodom. Abraham stayed in the promised land. Now we come to chapter 14 of the book of Genesis, and we see a new problem arises. Four kings from the Babylon area are subject to or take or conquer or rule over the five kings of the plain. Those kings decided we no longer want to pay taxes. And for 12 years they had paid taxes, but in the 13th year they decided we no longer want to pay taxes. So they stopped, thinking that those kings wouldn't travel 800 miles just for a little bit of money. Well, they guessed wrong. They did travel to them. They raped and pillaged and looted and kidnapped. And an escapee told Abraham what had happened and that his nephew Lot had been kidnapped. So Abraham mustered a Militia, 318 men, along with three neighboring militias. And in a surprise attack, they they chased these kings 150 miles north, regaining the people of Sodom and the people of the plain, all their possessions, including Lot, and restored them back. Lot should have learned a lesson from all this. Like, I'm not in a good place, but he went back to Sodom. Now we come to Genesis chapter 15. Let me read the first eight verses. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not. Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my own household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? God spoke to Abraham again after these things. What things? God knows all that Abraham has been through. His worries about his nephew. The battles he'd faced. 
God intends to comfort him and encourage him and so gives him a vision. This is the first time in the Bible so far that someone has had a vision. It's one way that God communicates with his people. I'm hearing about reports in the Middle East, many Muslims, some in Gaza, that are having visions of Jesus Christ who's appearing to them and they're coming to saving faith. I've had one vision myself. I was 18 years old, almost 19. And I'm not going to go into detail about what it was today. Many of you have heard it. But it's, it's real. I can tell you that. It's like you're watching something unfold before your very eyes. It's not just in your mind's eye or the imagination of your thoughts. Something is literally actually happening out in front of you. You are seeing into the supernatural realm. And so when that happened to myself and my friend, first thing he said to me is, we're going to die. We weren't supposed to see that. We were fearful. And that's the next thing that the Lord says to him, fear not. That's the first time that phrase appears in the Bible. And it occurs in the Bible a lot. Someone has counted, and I don't know if it's accurate, 365 times. One fear not per day. A daily vitamin you can take. Why was he afraid? I think as he was reflecting, he realized, I should not have won that battle. I was outnumbered. God must have helped me. That's why he gave the tithe to Melchizedek. He had acted on impulse. Adrenaline was flowing, and he just did it. And now, back home, he's thinking, and he's reflecting on what has just happened. He's living in Hebron, which is a wide-open place. He's a sitting duck. He realizes that these kings would be furious and want to enact revenge, especially when they found out that they were defeated by a shepherd and 318 men. They would be angry and furious, and their pride would be aroused. And I think Abraham was sitting there reflecting on that, and he was afraid. His rash action jeopardized God's plan. Think about that. What if he would have been killed in battle? Everything would have been kaput. So he's sitting there reflecting, maybe wondering, what if? Do you ever have those thoughts in the middle of the night? that stalk your dreams, those kind of fears. What if? What if this happens or that happens? God knows this and says to him, I am your shield. God promises to be his protector. That word can also be tra- translated as deliverer. Genesis fourteen twenty, And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. God can keep you safe. But he also can deliver you when you are captured. Psalm 32, 7 says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. God knows your areas of vulnerability and promises to be there and protect you. Next, he says, your reward shall be very great. Abraham had received no reward for rescuing Lot and the others. He gave 10% to Melchizedek. Then he gave the rest to the neighboring militias. So God says to him, I'm your reward, Abraham. Me, not stuff. You have me. God will provide. Abraham, you don't need Pharaoh. You don't need the king of Sodom. You have me. I'll give you everything you need. So I wonder this morning, what have you given up for Christ? 
Have you given up career goals or marriage goals or time or friends or or maybe a more peaceful existence? It seems as though Lot got everything back. He got all his goods back. He went right back to Sodom, not realizing that soon that place would be ashes. In verse 2, Abraham complains to God that he's childless. God hasn't given him an heir. He says, a slave will be my heir. I think before he thought of Lot as his heir, but now Lot is off on his own in Sodom, and I think he's given that up. It's been ten years since Abraham left Haran for Canaan. He's 85 now, Sarah 75. I want you to put yourself in Abraham's shoes right this moment. Do you feel his emotions that are stirring in him? Tears of sadness and disappointment. You promised me an heir and you haven't delivered. It's okay to tell God how you feel. He wants that kind of a relationship with you. He wants truthfulness from you. Tell him, God, I'm disappointed in you. Why haven't you done this? He can take it. He's a big God. Abraham is saying, can I really trust you? And God is reassuring his heart. Yes, you can trust me. I will be there for you and deliver you. God had a plan for him and he has a plan for you as well. But it requires waiting. It requires learning to trust. Sometimes right now isn't God's timing for you because maybe you're not ready Or maybe the others aren't ready. So we must learn to be patient and wait. Abraham mentions Eliezer of Damascus. Damascus is a city in Syria. When they were staying in Haran, it wasn't too far. He bought Eliezer at Haran, the halfway point of obedience, the place of compromise rather than full faith. Abraham was thinking this slave is God's best. God will never allow second best or compromise of his plan in your life. What are you waiting and trusting God for today? Marriage? Healing? Reconciliation of a relationship? A baby? A job? Let me ask you this. What do you have less of today than what God wants for you? God straight out tells him, this man will not be your heir. Someone from your own body, your own child, will be your heir. And Abraham asked him to confirm that, so God shows him the stars of heaven. With no city lights where Abraham was, can you imagine what that starry sky looked like? It must have been incredible. The sky full of stars, and Abraham saw that. When we lived in Pasadena, oftentimes people who lived down in the valley would go up in the San Gabriel Mountains, to Mount Wilson, one of the tallest peaks there, overlooking the L.A. Basin. And we, Kathy and I, got out of our car and sat on the windshield or on the hood of the car and just looked up at the sky and looked over the L.A. Valley. It looks like diamonds on black velvet. So many lights. It's incomprehensible. The city and all the suburbs. I don't know how many millions of people live there. But then there's a place where it's suddenly totally black. And you realize, oh, that's the Pacific Ocean. So Abraham would have had an experience like that, looking up instead of down, but looking up at the stars. God is saying, that's what your descendants are going to be like. Oftentimes we struggle to believe God for just a little bit 
little thing when he has something much bigger in store for us. The Apostle Paul picked up on this story. He's read it many times. And in verse 6, he makes a comment. Four times in his letters. In verse 6 is where Abraham got in the wheelbarrow. And where God pushed him across Niagara Falls. Paul says in Romans 4, 18 and 21 and 2. In hope, he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul quotes this verse, Genesis 15, 6, four times, James once. This is the first time the word believed is used in the Bible. That's an interesting study. First times certain words occur. It means certainty. Abraham knew for certain that he would have a son. When he believed God, it was counted to him or credited to him as righteousness. That's an accounting term that means paid in full. Let's say you have no money in your bank account at all and you've got all these bills coming in. And then someone, in this case, God, puts money in your account so you can pay all your bills. God credits Christ's holiness to you. Christ, God credits Christ's righteousness to you. You now have right standing with God, not based on what you've done but based on what he's done. It's a legal transaction. Let, let's say you're an orphan. You owe nothing. But then you're adopted. Into your adopted family, now you have all that they have. And all you have to do is believe it's so. Believe it's true. God reiterates the promise to Abraham about an heir in verse 7. And then in verse 8, Abraham wants the confirmation number. So God's going to give it to him. Let's go on and read in our text, 15, 9 to 21. He said to him, God speaking to Abram, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham or Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, 
and the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, this is a weird sounding story to us, but it would not have been to Abraham. He would have understood this is about how you make a covenant. You cut a covenant. Today, we may say, I cut a deal. The marriage covenant is the closest parallel to this we have. With easy divorce, we kind of lost sight of what a covenant truly is. It was entered into permanently. You couldn't be released. A wedding is a welding. You're welded together as one. And three young couples in our church are soon going to be welded together as one as they make a marriage covenant together. So kings would agree to a covenant with other kings for protection. Political alliances were made just like this, cutting a covenant. So God used how a covenant was made to teach Abraham a deep lesson about what covenant God was making with him. So as we, uh, if you're looking at your sheet there, for those of you who love filling in blanks, this is fill in blank heaven. Okay. All right. So let's go through the steps of the covenant. It's done publicly at the city gate, usually with witnesses present. First is the exchange of robes. This is exchanging identities. Now, let's say there's a jacket I always wear. And so you see me at a distance. You think I'm somebody else, but we've exchanged jackets. So if I asked Pastor Charles this morning to exchange jackets, if you saw me in this black jacket, but it was really Charles wearing it. That's the idea. You exchanged robes. You exchanged identities. Secondly, is the exchange of belts. You exchanged belts. On your belt, you kept your sword in your purse. So you kept the means to defend yourself, but also to supply your needs. You're exchanging assets, goods, and strength. For us today, it would be like Pastor Charles and I exchanged our wallets. And I bet I would be a lot happier with uh, my new wallet than he would. Thirdly is the exchange of weapons. And that was an exchange of enemies. You vow to protect each other. Your enemy is my enemy. Your friend is my friend. We actually have an example of that with Jonathan and David in 1 Samuel 18, 4. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. They were making a covenant with each other. To protect each other. Fourthly, blood sacrifice. Blood sacrifice. That meant the death of one or more animals. Listen to what Jeremiah the prophet said about the covenant that God had made in Israel that they broke. You don't break the covenant. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. This is very serious, making a covenant. You vow... If I break this covenant, 
may I die just like these animals. God told Abraham to bring three large animals and two birds and cut them in half, except for the birds. His only responsibility was to keep the vultures off of them. I think you're already seeing a picture here of Christ, aren't you? That he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. By his blood, we have forgiveness of our sins. He's our blood sacrifice. Fifth, the walk of death. In prison, if someone is to go to the electric chair, the morning of their execution, they walk from their cell to the place where the electric chair is. And the other prisoners see them and they say, it's a dead man walking. The animal's throat would be slit. It would be laid on its back, split in half. And both sides would be placed on, oftentimes they would look for like a little ditch where the half the carcass would be on one side and half on the other, and then the blood would drain down into the ditch. So a little walkway. That was called the blood path. And if both partners walk through the blood, your feet would be covered in blood. The blood would splash up on your robes. Abraham knew if he broke the covenant, he would be a dead man. But he knew he couldn't keep it. He was terrified. If his big toe touched a little bit of that blood, he was obligated to keep it. But Abraham never walked in the blood. Only God did. Look at verse 17. I want to reread that. You may have missed it when I read through the whole passage. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. This is mysterious, isn't it? The fire representing God. Remember the burning bush? Remember where it says our God is a consuming fire? Remember the places where it says that the smoke filled the tabernacle or the smoke filled the temple? This is the Lord God Almighty walking the blood path, not Abraham. God was taking all the responsibility for keeping the covenant. If broken by God or us, God dies. Christ died for us. He walked the blood path, the Via Della Rosa, the path to death on his way to the cross. The sixth thing of the covenant was the exchange of blood. Exchange of blood. You've probably seen this in movies. They would take a knife and cut their palm, each person in the covenant. Then they would join their hands together. They would exchange blood. Gangs do that. Maybe you did it as a kid. I think I can remember cutting my little finger and two of us guys putting our fingers together. So what would happen in the future, you would wave to someone and they would see the mark. They would see the scar. And you would say, I'm part of the covenant. I'm not an enemy. I'm a friend. And our handshaking tradition and our waving tradition comes from this idea. You're showing your hands. Hey, I'm unarmed. I come as a friend. I'm part of the covenant. For the Jews, circumcision was the mark of the covenant. But for the Christian, I think of Christ's marks on his crucified body when he said to Thomas, take a look at me, see my hands, see the marks in my hands, see the hole in my side, put your hands in there. Seventh, exchange of blessings and curses. 
The partners at this point in the covenant ritual faced each other and they spoke blessings on each other for keeping the covenant. They spoke curses on each other for not keeping the covenant. If you wanted to read Deuteronomy 28, there's a biblical example of the blessings and curses for the covenant. Blessings for keeping the covenant are in our text. Abraham's descendants would receive the land, but not for a long time. Some 400 years would pass before they did. And what God said would happen did indeed happen. Abraham had Isaac and Isaac had Jacob and Jacob had Joseph and Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt. A famine brought his entire family down there where Jacob and his sons and their children lived in Egypt for many centuries. They eventually became enslaved by the Pharaoh. God raised up Moses as a deliverer for them. And then they returned across the Red Sea and into the promised land and took possession of the land that God promised that they would have. Abraham himself didn't experience that, but the text says would be buried in a good old age. God is in charge of your death. He controls your future and that of your children and grandchildren. You can bank on it. That's good to know. Some 430 years would pass before the Jews would take possession of the land. Similar to the Jews being expelled from Israel in 70 A.D. And and still somehow nearly 1900 years later, God brought them back to their land because it's their land. God promised it to them. Why was it some 400 years or 430 years in between and nearly 1900 years again? Genesis 15, 16 tells us, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. It wasn't morally and legally right to take away their land yet, even though they were horrible sinners, as we saw in Sodom and Gomorrah nearby. The people of the land would become even more wicked from the time of Abraham until Joshua and his men conquered and destroyed them. Now, to your ears, that may seem cruel and unfair, but it wasn't. It was just. It was God's just punishment on child sacrificing, demon worshiping murderers. They had lost their moral right to live on that land. It was justice then and it's justice now, not apartheid. The land belongs to the Jews whom God gave to them. Eighth, exchange of food. The covenant partners would feed each other the first bites. What does that sound familiar? Like a wedding? Where the bride and the groom would feed each other the first bite of the cake without shoving it into their face, hopefully? They were taking each other into themselves, as it were. It was personal and intimate fellowship. But this beautifully symbolizes the Lord's Supper, doesn't it? The covenant meal where Jesus says, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Ninth, exchange of names. The covenant partners would face each other and take each other's names. Again, doesn't that remind us of a wedding where the bride takes the last name of her husband? So instead of Ed Vincent, it's now Charles Vincent or Ed Smith. God changed Abram's name to Abraham. There's an A-H in the middle. One of God's names is Yah, Y-A-H. Abram became Abraham, God's name. 
And God took Abram's name. Where God says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Even Sarai's name was changed with the name of God added to her name, A.H. Genesis 17, 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall no longer call her name Sarai, but Sarah will be her name. Tenth. Exchange of oldest sons. Each covenant partner's oldest son moved into the house of the other. For me, this occurs in Genesis chapter 22, when God asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son. And we will get to that story eventually. Instead of his son, though, Because God withheld him from plunging the knife into his son, he provided a ram instead. But God did not stop the hand of the Roman soldiers from his son. He, Jesus, was allowed to die for us. And so now Jesus lives in us and is with us. Only God can fulfill the covenant, as Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20 tells us. It doesn't depend on us. It depends on God. And we can all we need to do is accept and believe it is true. Let's pray. Lord, right now, there may be someone here, the sound of my voice, that has never entered into that covenant with you, that they have followed you from afar, perhaps, but they don't have that personal, intimate relationship So right now, well, every head is bowed and eyes closed. If you need to make a commitment to Jesus Christ as your Savior to receive him and what he's done for you, just raise your hand quickly. And I want to pray for you. Just want to make sure that I'm looking at all covenant believers this morning. I give you that opportunity if someone needs to make that commitment. Lord, thank you for what you have done for us. That you walked that path of death, that blood path for us. And you said, yes, I'll go. I'll keep the covenant. And now we are in him who believe. We believed in you, Lord. We put our faith and trust in you. And now give us your strength, your spirit to be in us so that we may walk every day closer with you. I say in Jesus' name, amen. Let's be.